The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we do thank you for our church. We thank you for the gift that it is to us, Father, of encouraging each other, of having uh, friends of similar faith, Father, to encourage each other, to help us to persevere, to love you, to bear each other's burdens, and Father, to, to share with one another, to share and grow together, and to love each other, Father, as we await your coming and as we await the time when we will be with you. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your coming, and we ask that you would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to teach something related uh, to what David has been uh, teaching, what he just finished, and what Frank has been teaching. So my topic for all five weeks will be the deity of Christ. Namely that while Christ is a different person than the Father, he shares and is fully divine and shares the glory and nature of God the Father. A different person, but shares fully the glory and nature of God the Father. My goal for today, uh, both first and second hour, as well as Wednesday night, is simply to explain how this topic of the deity of Christ relates to what David and Frank have been teaching. For Frank, maybe you feel like, hey, that's an easy one. We've been, we've been going through the life of Christ, uh, so that's the connection there. It's actually maybe not as obvious as you think. I mean, even Frank, as he's been talking about, has said it took the disciples a minute before they realized who exactly Jesus was. And even some titles that we take for granted now, like Son of God, and we understand fully what is meant by that, as Frank has mentioned, uh, at the time, it very well may have been they understood it in the Davidic sense, in the same way that David was told that he would be a son of God and the kings of Israel would be sons of God. But we'll speak more about that Wednesday night and the connection between this topic of the deity of Christ and what Frank has been teaching on the life of Christ. This morning, I want to connect that topic of Christ's deity to what David has just finished uh, in the book of Jude. So I, I stole his slide here and put my topic at the bottom, but hopefully that shows I'm trying to connect uh, with what David has just finished. And my goal uh, for the first hour is to show that the denial of Jesus Christ, which if you're still in Jude from where we read it and you look at verse 4, the denial of our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, that that directly relates to the question of Christ's deity, and I want to show that this morning. We'll look at that specifically, uh, and if I succeed, we'll see that what Jude had in mind when he said that these ungodly persons who had crept in unnoticed were denying the Lord Jesus Christ. If I succeed in my topic this morning, you'll understand how that relates to the deity of Christ. In the Sunday school hour, we're going to take a very brief history into the early church, the first three centuries of the early church, and show how this actually worked out after Jude wrote. So, you know, Second Peter, as David mentioned, said, hey, false teachers are coming. Jude said, hey, they're here. And so what happened after? And that's what we'll look at this morning. And we'll particularly at the very end of that time in Sunday school, look at four scriptures that early church uh, heretics used and even folks today use to say Jesus is not fully divine. He had a beginning. Uh, we'll look at those four and that will be what we cover the next four weeks. So we'll look at each of those four scriptures. So today after our history lesson, I'll explain four verses that they used to, to make an argument that Christ had a beginning, that he isn't fully divine in the sense of sharing all of God's attributes, including not being created. 
Um, we'll look at those scriptures over the next four weeks. But we're going to start in Jude today, and I'm going to try to connect what David has been teaching with this topic of Christ's deity. So verse 4, again, was the reason why Jude changed his mind, why he changed his purpose in writing. He was going to write to talk about their common salvation, but because of these ungodly persons who had crept in unnoticed, he changed and asked his readers instead to be prepared to fight, to be prepared to contend for the faith, namely because these ungodly persons were doing two things. Right? They were turning God's grace into licentiousness, on the one hand, and they were denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ, on the other. Now, we're going to spend most of our time on the second of those, but let me just begin, because they're connected, talking about the first, turning the grace of God into licentiousness. Grace is just, it's the Greek word charis. It means an unmerited gift. It's the same word as a gift. Grace is the principle, gift is the noun. Uh, it's a gift. Even you hear the word, uh, charis is the Greek word charismatic. A charismatic speaker has the gift of speaking. Or a charismatic uh, Christian is one who believes the, the gifts, the miraculous gifts, are still in operation today. So that's the word grace. It's a gift. And I don't know about y'all, but I know when I was a kid, my, my parents had to train me the proper way to respond to a gift, right? I don't know. When I got a gift... I loved it. I think I responded well in that sense. I would enjoy it and play it, but I would never think about what? Thank you. Yeah, I'd never think about the person who gave it to me. I wouldn't say thank you, so I had to be trained. Hey, I mean, the gift is great, but say thank you to the person who gave you the gift, right? Well, these readers of Jude needed to be trained about how they respond to gifts because they were given some gifts, and they responded by turning those gifts into licentiousness. Licentiousness is just a lack of moral restraint. It's, it's breaking, it's going past boundaries that an authority has put in place for things like sex or sexual morality. What are the boundaries? Well, uh, they would go beyond those. They would not, they would break laws and they would, uh, when it comes to greed or money or food, they would pursue these things without restraint. That's what licentiousness is. So they've been given a gift and in response, they pursue these cravings, these lusts without restraint. And, you know, we've said before when we had our study here about uh, overcoming sexual temptation and overcoming financial temptation, if you remember back, we said, hey, desires, those are good things. Sex, money, these are all really great things that God has put in our world and allowed us to enjoy in this life under the sun. And yet, they're dangerous. They're dangerous if used improperly. And remember the analogy we use, they're like electricity. Like, who wants to be in a dark room right now without air conditioning? No, we love electricity, but you've got to be really careful. You have to use it properly, otherwise that gift is, is deadly. And these gifts uh, that they had received, they were turning into licentiousness. They were craving things, and they were not following uh, the, the laws, the, the regulations, the principles, the things meant to keep them safe and enjoy those things. They were, they were running past those in a dangerous way. And Jude, right after he says this, gives three examples of, of folks in the past that had done the same thing, right? He talks about people who had saved, been saved from Egypt. That was a gift, right? I mean, these were slaves in Egypt. They were being whipped. They were being mistreated. They were having to kill their, their children, their male children. And they were delivered miraculously. What a gift, right? And what, how, what did they do with that gift? What did they trade it for? Well, they traded it for an unrestrained desire for food and water. 
and the like, right? And even immorality in the incident with Balaam. He talks about, secondly, angels, right? What a gift. I mean, created before even us. They were there to see the creation of the world and of man and of all the animals. What a gift to be close to God, to, to be able to see his glory and praise him. And what did they do? They traded that because they saw the beauty of women that God had created and they left their proper domain and they pursued licentiousness. They, they went past the restraints that God had put in place. They, they left their proper domain. Or, or lastly, the third in verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. What gift did they have? Do you remember when Abraham and Lot were uh, having too many animals and they needed to separate? And remember what it said? They looked at, around and Lot saw uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and it was like remember what it was like the garden of the Lord it was like Eden it was so amazing so lush so beautiful it was an amazing area what a gift and what did they do they lived in luxury and they ended up pursuing all kinds of sexual immorality of the worst sort and they traded that gift for an awful awful behavior an awful way of living and Jude is concerned that his readers that ungodly people have come to the church and the gift that Jude's readers have been given, he's concerned that they are going to take that and they're going to, like those three examples, turn it to licentiousness. He says in verse 16, verse 18, the ungodly follow after their ungodly lust. He's worried about the lust that will lead them to dangerous places. So like the Israelites who had been delivered from Egypt needed to check their lust for food and sex and water and not grumble and like the angels who needed to check their desires for the beauty of women uh, and appreciate the gift that God had given them and, and remain under God's authority, or like the residents of verdant Sodom and Gomorrah who needed to check their lust for more pleasure, Jude's readers had people among them who had experienced a gift. What gift? Freedom from sin, freedom from, freedom from condemnation, freedom from the curse of sin. And they traded that, or were trading that, in progress of trading that, for licentiousness, for sexual morality, for unrestrained greed. I want to ask three questions about that. Uh, first, is that likely? Like, what is, is that, why, why did that happen? Does that seem reasonable that that happened? Why would we even think that is likely, or is that likely? The second question I want to ask is, did it really happen? Did this happen in the early church? Did people turn that grace that they had experienced into licentiousness? And third, is it still true today? Is it relevant for us today? Those are the three questions I want to ask about this before we move to the second half of verse 4, which is where we're going to spend most of our time on. We're going to ask the same questions of the second half. First, is it likely? Is it? Can you even explain that phenomenon, that someone would receive the gift of a promise of eternal life and you would turn it? to licentiousness. Does that even make sense? And I say yes. I, I think it does make sense. You think about someone who has responded to the Christian gospel, right? They do so in the midst of a life of fear of death, of trials, of burdens, of uh, guilt, guilty conscience, and here they're freed. They have the promise of freedom from all that, of eternal life, of bliss, of inheriting the world, of joy forevermore, right? That's the promise. And by faith, they've received that as real and true. Right? That's what it means to be to hear the gospel and respond in faith to that. They've received that. Right? And then 
that's the promise. The promise is we're going to have eternal joy, eternal bliss, without pain, without suffering, even though we don't deserve it, right? But what happens next? Well, what happened to the Israelites? Go back and let's take the analogy first. They were, what were they promised? Very similar things, right? You're going to have a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And what are they in the midst of? Slavery, right? Whoa, this is fabulous. And miraculous deliverance. They went through the Red Sea. And what was next? Was it the lush Canaan? No, right? It was desert. It was lack of food. It was lack of water. It was enemies, the Amalekites, right? And many people said what? Ah, uh, that's not what I signed up for. I'm going back. There were leeks and onions. I don't know why anybody would want to go back for leeks and onions. But they liked them. They wanted to go back for leeks and onions, right? And similarly, we might, as believers, a person might really appreciate the promise of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins and the, the expectation and hope of a, of a glorious future. But what comes next? Often worse trials than you would have had if you just stayed and fit in with the world, right? I mean, take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Or all those who desire to live godly will experience persecution. Or if they hated me, they're going to hate you, right? So it does seem very likely that someone could start on the Christian wall because of, and I'm sorry for my phone, I guess I should have turned down the volume, another another learning. It makes you really appreciate David when he has the snafus, uh, you know, it, they come very rare and I've, it makes you appreciate him very much. When they start, you, you start wanting those things, the things that you you believe, believe. Faith is, according to Hebrews, believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. And sometimes we those rewards, in the case of Abraham and many of the people in, in Hebrews 11, they were future. They didn't see them, right? Because they didn't want, God wanted us to receive them together. So they saw them as still distant. And so, but some people say, I want the goodness. I want the good things. And so they start to press beyond the bounds God has set, right? To get those things. So it is, it is likely. And true saving faith is, is that which continues through that middle time until the promises are realized. And Jude ends with that, remember? He says, now to him who will keep you into that time. He'll keep you to eternal life, to the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. So I do think it is likely that this might happen. Did it happen? Did it really happen? Well, it did. I want to just give you an example from the Bible, but also some examples, uh, really quick, we're not going to not spend a ton of time on this, but also some examples from church history. But remember in 1 Corinthians, we're going to, it might be worth just having your finger in 1 Corinthians because we're going to spend some time in it, second hour as well. But remember in 1 Corinthians 5, right? 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing and says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among unbelievers, even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So absolutely it happened, right? I mean, even not only did it happen, it happened in the grossest kind of way, in the kind of thing you would not expect even wicked pagans to do, right? So absolutely it happened. Jude's concern was not unfounded. Um, how, could they, how could they do that? Wouldn't it be obvious to everyone around that this is wrong and wouldn't they you know immediately kick up a fuss well listen to verse 2 did they kick up a fuss 
No, you've actually become puffed up and you haven't mourned so that the, the one who has done this deed should have been removed from your midst. How in the world did that happen? Well, again, it shows Jude's concern was founded, but how could they explain this? How could those that were among these ungodly people who had crept into Corinth, how could they not have contended against this? Well, here's how. Look at verse, there were other things the Corinthians were doing. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. He talked about that they had been puffed up instead of mourning, right? Well, what caused them to get puffed up? Concerning things sacrificed to idols, another thing that we've studied here together, and you'll recall, but we know we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So the way that they handled, the way that they continued this immorality within the church was through so-called knowledge. You know, we, we know that it's okay for us. We know idols are nothing. We can eat food sacrificed to idols. Or, in the case of the sexual immorality that I was just describing, look at 6.12. All things are lawful for me. That would be something that they might have been saying. Like, everything's lawful. The law has been ended because of Christ's sacrifice. So all things are lawful to me. I can do what I want. And so this sort of rationalization or justification or explanation this based on so-called knowledge that they're puffed up and arrogant about is what was keeping them from contending against such licentiousness or such immorality. So even before the canon was closed, we see an example of what Jude was writing about in the in the church at Corinth. But let me read to you, uh, I've got three examples. I don't know that I'll read all of them uh, for time's sake. But let me read a couple, at least, uh, from the first couple of centuries of the church. This is Clement of Alexandria. He was a second century church father from Alexandria, Egypt. And he writes about the licentious Gnostics. Licentious, we've already defined Gnostics. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. The people who said, hey, we know why it's okay to be like this, and rationalized and gave explanations or reasons. In a proud conceit of the exaltation of the spirit above matter... Right? That was one of their so-called knowledge ways to explain this. Matter is not important. It's all about the spirit. You can do whatever you want with your flesh. It doesn't matter. It's not a thing. So they exalted the spirit above matter. Or even on the diabolical principle that sensuality must be overcome by indulging it. That was another argument that they made. They bade defiance to all moral laws. These are these are folks from the church. Actually, they were derived from a guy. They were called the Nicolaitans. You remember in Revelation where he, he, he chides them for uh, not kicking out the Nicolaitans, and uh, Nicolaitans were likely from Nicholas, which was one of the original seven uh, deacons, as it were, that were mentioned in Acts 6. Regardless, these are, these are people in the church, as David described. These are not people outside. Uh, they are making these arguments, this so-called knowledge. They gave themselves up to the most shameless licentiousness. It's no great thing, they said, to restrain lust, but it's surely a great thing not to be conquered by it when you indulge in it. Right? Here's Irenaeus against heresies regarding one named Marcus. There's another among these heretics, Marcus by name, who boasts himself as having improved upon his master. He is a perfect adept in magical impostures, and by this means draws away a great number of men and not a few women. He has induced them to join themselves to him as to one who is possessed of the greatest knowledge and perfection, and who has received the highest power from the invisible and ineffable regions above. How can you argue against that? 
He's got this power from the invisible and ineffable regions above. I don't, I mean, how do you argue against it? Well, you argue against it because he's doing this. It appears as if he were really the precursor of Antichrist for joining the buffooneries of Anaxalius to the craftiness of the Magi, as they are called. He is regarded by his senseless and cracked brain followers. Wow. As working miracles by these means, he goes on to explain that he'd use his magic and so-called knowledge to seduce women in accord with his ungodly lust. We're going to talk about this here this morning, but the way you go against that is you have to stick with what's written. Everyone who is... Uh, who is finding ways to rationalize immorality and licentiousness is doing it by claiming that they have knowledge outside of what's written. And so that's really important to remain faithful to what's written because, again, what did he call it? The invisible and ineffable regions above. I don't know. I can't see that. I I can't understand that. And in our passage in Jude, we're going to see it's through dreaming that they come up with their, their knowledge. Okay, that's two examples. And is this still true today? The last question. We're going to ask these same questions about those who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, which I want to spend the most time on. Is this still true today? Absolutely, right? I mean, in spades, is this true today? The visible church in America has found ways to explain away adultery, homosexuality, greed, pride, covetousness, abortion, in ways that would bring Jesus' rebuke no less than the churches in Revelation. It's absolutely true today. David's explained the ending of Jude that God will keep believers from all this, blameless until the day when they'll have great joy with God. And I don't want to spend our time on this. I would just encourage us all to, this is a real, I mean, lust, sex, money, power, these are all very drawing things. I mean, it is a very serious concern. I don't mean to just to go over this to the denying of Jesus Christ just for the sake of picking the second set of the first. But we did study this before. And I'd encourage you uh, to continue to think about when we did. And I'll just give you three reminders of what we studied when we studied Ecclesiastes and Proverbs 1. You know, Solomon said, remember in a, de- in a book bemoaning death, how bitter death was. Remember he said, there's something more bitter than death. You remember? And that was entrapped, being entrapped by sexual sin. We talked about sex was like electricity, a fabulous thing for which we're grateful for as long as it's used correctly. It's dangerous otherwise. And last, you know, we should let fear be mixed with appreciation for the gift. Fear that it will take away joy not only in this life, which is what we said, but it could lead to us receiving in the end God's vengeance, right? God's an avenger of these things. And remember, lastly, all this is review from Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Remember, lastly, that traps are not things that we can always get out of on our own. So you you mess around with that to your own uh, peril, perhaps. Again, God is gracious many times, and many people have been delivered from sexual sin, financial sin, greed, whatever. But you do so to your own peril. Okay, again, that's not what this sermon is about. I'm ready to start. This sermon, that is just one of the two things that the ungodly were doing, according to Jude. It's not the one I want to focus on. It's the second thing I want to focus on. These ungodly ones who had started off, it seemed just like all the other readers of Jude's letter, all the other believers in the church, they had begun, but they had turned not only their grace to licentiousness, but were denying Jesus Christ. That's an amazing, what does that even mean? How could they be in the church and deny Jesus Christ? What does that mean? Well, Jude doesn't elaborate immediately, right at verse 4, but we can say several things about it initially. First, 
denying Jesus is obviously whatever it means, and we're going to get to that. We're going to explain exactly what it means. Whatever it means, though, it's it's very serious. It's something very serious. 1 John 2.23 says, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. So it's a big deal. You deny the Son, whatever that means, you don't have the Father. You don't have life. 2 Timothy 2.12, If we deny Him, He will deny us. Right? And maybe the most relevant verse for us because of the connection between Jude and 2 Peter, 2 Peter 2.1, it says, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So whatever it is to deny Jesus, and we're going to get to that, it's serious. It causes losing the Father. It causes God denying us. And it means we would get swift destruction. Second initial thing we can say about it is that unlike licentiousness, it's primarily done through teaching. It's primarily about teaching this denial. It's not like licentiousness, which you think is an act, right? You indulge or you participate in sexual immorality or in gluttony or in whatever abuse of of good gift God has given us where you go beyond the bounds that he has established for us. It's not even like Peter's denial when you think about, like, you know, hey, do you know Jesus? No, I don't know Jesus. That's not what he has in mind here. Let me show you that. It's about teaching, right? Look at the parallel passage in 2 Peter. Hopefully you're still in Jude. You don't have to turn back very far. But look at 2 Peter 2, verse 1. Right? These are false teachers who introduce destructive heresies. So they're teachers that are doing this. And they're introducing heresies. Look at verse 3. They exploit you with false what? Words, right? I heard somebody say these are this denial is done through false teachers, through words. You can see it a little less clearly in Jude. It is there. If you look in verse 15 of Jude, he's coming to execute judgment for all the ungodly deeds which they have done, and of all the harsh things which they have spoken against him. It's teaching again. So What's the big deal? Where where is this teaching coming from, this denial that's kind of teaching? Well, we said that for the people who are indulging in licentiousness and immorality to remain in the church, they'd have to rationalize their sin, right? They have to give an explanation for it. Like someone has got their father's or their mother, what was it, their father's wife, right? Somebody's going to say, hey, what's the deal there, right? And you've got to give an answer to that. Otherwise, you know, they're going to kick you out of the church. Well, that answer, that teaching, that knowledge that they then use to rationalize the immorality of whatever sort it is, is the denial of Jesus that he has in mind. In verse 2 of 2 Peter 2, it says, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. So there's this sensuality, this desire for pleasure, that's leading to having to give an answer, a false answer, based on so-called knowledge, that is causing the truth to be maligned. So, denying Christ is something very serious, and it's something related to teaching, teaching in a way that justifies or rationalizes sensuality or licentiousness. And finally, third, at its core, this teaching which denies Christ is a rejection of authority. That's the kind of teaching it is. It's a rejection of authority. That's why Jude uses the two two terms, they deny our 
master, despotes in Greek, you can hear the word despot in it. They deny our master and our Lord. It's the, rege- it's the authority of Christ that they're rejecting. Again, very explicit in 2 Peter. Listen to 2 Peter 2.10. Those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust, all these people that are pursuing lust interests, what do they do? They despise authority. Right? Even in Jude, it's explicit. Jude 8. These men, by dreaming, they defile the flesh. They commit licentiousness, sensuality, right? And they reject authority. Let me use an analogy to explain why what this might be like. You think about unbelievers, right? There's a, a theory in the unbelieving world that's very popular about how the world began. What is it? Evolution, right? I mean, it's not really a good theory, honestly. I mean, in, in reality, it's not a good theory. It's very improbable, right? It doesn't explain how something came from nothing. It doesn't. It has no answer how, how things began to begin with. It's, it doesn't explain phenomena like this building, right? Where did the building come from? Well, there's a builder, right? I mean, every other thing we looked at, we look at, it, it has a creator, right? It does. We don't see fossils or things transitioning today. I shouldn't say fossils. We don't see animals or things transitioning today. Why is it stopped? You know, it's just a bad theory in general, and I'm no scientist at all, so take that with a grain of salt, but it, it seems a bad theory in general, but why is it postulated? Why, why is it taking such a foothold? Why is it so widely believed among unbelievers? That's right. Hey, I, I, there is no authority. I can... I can do what I want because in reality there's no God that's, gonna, that's there to hold me accountable. So that's not what the church, that's not what these teachers, they're not going and saying, hey, there's no God or there's no Christ, right? But they're doing something very similar in some kind of teaching. They are ultimately denying the authority of Christ for the purpose of rationalizing, justifying their sensuality and their sin. So in, in summary, this denial, whatever it is, and we're going to say exactly what it is, but this denial is very serious. It's done through false teaching, and it's essentially a rejection of Christ's authority. But can we say more? Can we give more details? What teaching are they bringing? How are they rationalizing their sin in a way that rejects Christ's authority? But to me, it's not an easy thing to answer. Uh, Jude and Peter give a ton of descriptions of the false teachers, descriptions that to me are really hard to understand. Uh, you know, things like hidden reefs and love feasts and clouds without water, like really hard terms that are, at least for me, hard to understand. And I'm thankful David has worked through both Second Peter and Jude. We have a resource to go back and listen to, to understand sort of the description of the teachers themselves. But for my purpose today, I'm actually trying to learn more about what their teaching was, not necessarily a description of them. What were they teaching that was causing Christ's authority to be rejected? And again, it's not explicit. It's not immediately clear. But there are some hints, three, that I want to call out in particular in Jude that I think can help us understand what is, how are they seriously, very significantly and dangerously teaching in a way that rejects Christ's authority. What are they saying? There's three hints. I want to tell you what the hints are, and then we'll follow the hints after. Let me tell you what they are first. First hint, in, in verse 8 of Jude, Jude expands his list of two things. Peter and Jude, for the most part, carry those two things. 
that following sensuality and that rejecting Christ. Those are the two things that they follow. But Jude has expanded his list of two things to be three. Look at it. He says, In the same way these men, by dreaming, defile the flesh. That's the licentiousness, right? They defile the flesh. They reject authority. That's the denying Jesus, right? And they blaspheme glorious ones. That's interesting. And he goes on to talk more about that third one that he's just added in verses 9 and 10. We know he's going on because he keeps repeating the word blaspheme. Uh, you might see it in the NAS or other translations as revile, but the word blaspheme or revile he repeats in 8, 9, and 10. So interestingly enough, that's a hint. You know, what's he doing there? Why well, he's been talking about these two things, sensuality, rejection of Christ, and now he's talking about blaspheming glorious ones. What is, what is that? Why did he add that? So tuck that away. We'll come back to that. Oh, I should keep up to track here. Oh, no, no, I'm, I think I'm good. Okay. Um, hint two. Jude listed those two things. Let's go back to the two, licentiousness and denying Christ. He listed those two things in verse 4, and then he went on to give three Old Testament stories to explain the first one, right? What it meant, licentious behavior. We looked at the folks that came out of Egypt. We looked at the angels. We looked at Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Then, in verse 8, he again repeats the two things and adds the third, which we're going to look at later. But he repeats the two things, and he gives three more stories, right? Remember those three stories that we went through several weeks ago with David? Is it possible that those three are meant to describe the rejecting of Christ, the rejecting of authority, right? That would be helpful, if so, because that is going to help explicate, it's going to help explain what he means by these teachers rejecting Christ's authority. So we could possibly look at those three stories and say, hey, what's happening there that would help us understand what he has in mind with these false teachers? And last hint is still in verse 3. If our previous hint is in the right direction, if, if those new three stories are really about what it means to reject Christ, then that's helpful because another hint would be in verse 8 when he picks back up and says, okay, here's the two things. They defile the flesh and they reject authority. He says how they do it. They do it by dreaming. Interesting. What does he mean by that? How? What does dreaming have to do with the way that they reject Christ and, and reject his authority? Now, I want to follow those three hints and do our best to understand what Jude had in mind by these false teachers. What were they teaching? What were they saying that was leading to a rejection of Christ's authority. Let's follow hint number one. Okay, what? Why did he introduce this new element of uh, reviling or blaspheming glorious ones? I'm going to save a final answer to that question at the end of the hints. But for now, just note that the the reviling of the glorious ones is is blaspheming. It's speaking about glory, glorious things without proper reverence. Right? That's blasphemy like using God's name in vain. Like we shouldn't use it as a cuss word or as a simple thing. You know, it's like holy. It's the a, it's a name of God, right? That's what blasphemy is. It's speaking in a common way about something uncommon. And again, here as well, as he goes on to explain, it's clear he's talking about speaking. In verse 9, Michael the archangel, he's disputing with the devil. He refused to speak. He refused to issue a judgment, to say something, you know, blasphemous. He rather spoke with reverence. The Lord rebuke you, right? Or verse 10, 
Right? These men blaspheme things which they don't understand. They're saying, speaking commonly about things you can't fathom. Glorious, heavenly, spiritual things. How can they speak in a common way about that? They're like animals. Like, I live on a farm, right? And those chickens, they don't understand my world. You know, they're trying to get their little pecking order in the in the coop. They don't understand there's a whole world out there, you know, of a lot more than their little dirty coop, you know? Well, that's kind of these people. They don't understand that as amazing as humans are in our society, like, their glory is way beyond what we can imagine. And you can't just speak that way about these amazing things, right? So my main point here is what's happening is they're blaspheming. They're speaking in ways about glorious things that are causing them to be considered common or not as amazing as they are. They're doing so without fear, arrogantly. I, I think about, we took a trip to Helen, I don't remember how long ago, I don't know, a year ago, or eight, I don't remember, time escapes me, Malia knows. And we started by, they had this um, like trinket shop, you remember this like antique shop? And you know, to go in there with a bunch of little kids, like that is a bad experience. Like nothing broke, but it was horrible. It was no fun. Like, I, you know, even if it was an old place, like you walk around and the floor would kind of creak. And I'm just like, I don't know. I was worried the whole time. Like, don't touch, you know? And it was just not fun. It was like, you've heard the expression bull in a china shop, right? You know what yeah. that means, right? And you can sort of picture. And that's sort of what's happening here, right? They don't know how to act in an antique store. They don't know how to speak about glorious things. They're like children or a bull in a china shop. Okay, that's a hint that's going to come back. And why he chose to talk about that, again, I'll come back to that in just a second. But let's go on to hint two. Let's assume we were right for the moment about the, the new three stories, the new three Old Testament stories, as being about what it means to reject Christ, to deny his authority. The first three were about licentiousness, that of those that left Egypt, the angels that left their proper abode, Sodom and Gomorrah, that was about sensuality and licentiousness. The next three stories, Old Testament stories, are going to be about what it means to deny Christ. Let's assume we were right there for a second. So do, do the stories help us any? What do they have in common, these three stories? Let's go in reverse order. All right? you know where I'm at? I'm in verse 11. The last one he talks about is the rebellion of Korah. All right? You remember that story? Uh, they were not happy that Moses and Aaron were the only ones who got to have the important jobs, right? You remember that in Numbers 16? They were grumbling, a word that Jude uses as well of these uh, false teachers. They were grumbling about uh, Moses and Aaron, Korah, the son of Ezar. They rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel. They assembled together and said, you've gone too far. All the congregation is holy, every one of them. Yahweh's in their midst, so why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? Right? And Moses responds, I'll, I'm not going to read it all, but he says, Who are you? Who is You and all your congregation are gathered together against Yahweh, but as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, they said, We will not come up. So, why are, you, why are you coming near? Are you seeking the priesthood too? What's the deal? Why are you speaking against us? Well, it's clear from the context what they were trying to do, right? It's We're all holy just like you. You can't exalt yourself. You, you can't be separate. You don't get to go into the holy place and we don't. That's not right. right? That was what happened 
in that story. What about Balaam? What was Balaam hired to do? Right, remember? Curse. To curse Israel, right? Well, why? Because God had done what to Israel? He'd, set them, he'd chosen them special, right? Like, hey, there's all the nations out there, but I'm going to make this one special. Remember Balaam's called? Remember the, all the story about how he shouldn't have gone? He ends up going. The donkey speaks to him. He gets put up on the high hill so he can see him, and all he can say is good things about him, right? And But he was hired to come in and, and try to blur the distinction between this chosen nation and the other nations, and ultimately did so by means of sexual immorality, right? He introduced uh, a way of bringing them down through the, the sin of, of lust. or That's what happened in that story. What about Cain? This is the hardest one, which is why I went in reverse order. What, what happened with Cain? It's, it's solvable, but it's the hardest. God had, in a sense, separated or, you know, distinguished Abel over Cain, right? Remember? He, he said, hey, I like this sacrifice. And he had sort of set his apart different than Cain, who was a, a tiller of the ground, right? But is it about speaking? We keep talking about how this rejection of Christ is about speaking. In the case of Korah, they came and spoke against Moses and them, right? Balaam was hired to speak against them. So do we have that element in the story of Cain and Abel? Well, there's a really... it's. It's been smoothed out by English translations, but in Genesis 4, it's really kind of hard to understand. It says something to the effect of, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And everybody's kind of like, it's like he didn't finish the sentence. What did he say to him? Like, you know, he spoke to him, and then he rose up and killed him. Like, why, why is it written that way? Well, I, I think the reason it's written that way is because... the. The word spoke to is so common in the Hebrew Bible that it's just really easy to, to translate those words in Genesis 4, 8. He spoke to Abel, his brother, and then when they're in the killed, when they're in the field, he went out and killed them. But the same exact phrase, it's Kayan El Hebel Ahiv, the same exact phrase is in both parts of the verse. He rose up against Abel, his brother, and the same phrase is he spoke, it's just Normally, we translate that as he spoke to, but Hebrew prepositions are very flexible. They're used for a number of different things, and the exact same phrase is repeated in both parts of the verse, so it seems what the author is saying, Moses, sorry, is he spoke against Abel, his brother, and when he were out in the field, he rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him, right? So what the author is saying is he had something to say about God choosing him and separating him. You're no different than me. You're not better than me, right? There's some anger there, I'm sure, and then he ends up killing him. So even that story, as hard as it is perhaps to see, is about someone speaking against someone else, speaking particularly in a way to try to reduce the separation, right? I mean, Korah is the clearest one. Like, hey, you think you're holy. I'm just like you. There's no difference between us, and you blaspheme that person. I mean, God set that person apart and say that, right? And those are the stories that Jude uses to explain how they are denying Christ, if, if our hint number two is correct. So, and each example is about someone speaking poorly about someone who's been set into a glorious place. That person is trying to lower the person down with their words, right? Not allow them to be exalted. All right, let's follow hint number three. Remember what hint number three was? It was in verse eight where they said, however they reject Christ by teaching, they do it 
by dreaming. What is that about, right? They do it by dreaming. Well, in the in the world, the ineffable, I can't even remember it, you know, invisible and ineffable world of God, how do we learn about that? Can you see it? How do we learn about it? A lot was revealed. In it was revealed, and then what, what was it? It was revealed to Moses, but how do I learn about it? Scriptures. He wrote it down, right? He wrote it down. They don't come up with their teaching by looking at the scriptures. They come up with it by dreaming, right? Because how else are you going to learn about these things? If you want to have, to, if you want to say something about the glories of Christ, who is not here with us, who even when he was on this earth, he had laid aside his glory. Right? If I want to say something about the glory of Christ, how am I going to get that knowledge? I either got it written down because a prophet wrote it down, or I got to dream it. I got to make it up. It's got to be speculation. Right? It reminds me of Jeremiah 23. You can just write down the reference. I'll read it to you. I will probably read it fast because it's a, it, we've been here a while already and it's a, a long section. But Jeremiah 23, 14 to 32, the, the false prophets of old were accused of dreaming. Right? Listen to what Jeremiah says. Among the prophets of Jerusalem, I've seen an appalling thing. Listen to this. The committing of adultery. Right? This is not a new thing. Right? They, the the teachers in those days were committing immorality and licentiousness, right? And were finding ways to, to rationalize it. Listen to all the uh, connections to our passage in Jude. The committing of adultery and walking and lying, they strengthen the hand of evildoers so that no one is turned back from his evil. All of them have become to me like Sodom and their inhabitants like Gomorrah, right? Therefore, says Yahweh of hosts, don't listen to these prophets. They're leading you into vanity. I'm kind of skipping because I want to get to where... They keep saying to those who spurn me, you will have peace. Remember, Jeremiah was right before the destruction of Jerusalem. He's like, hey, you guys need to just do what the Babylonians say. It's too late. Like, no, everything's going to be fine. They say evil's not going to come on you, but who has stood in the council of Yahweh? Who has gone and listened to his word? Who has heard? Who has given heed to his word and heard? Right? The anger of Yahweh will not turn back. I did not send these prophets. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. If they had listened, if they had caused my words to be heard, they would have turned back these people from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. And then he says, as he continues, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy a lie in my name, saying, I had a, a dream. I had a dream. How long is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy a lie? Even these prophets of the deception of their own heart. They're making it up. They're just making it up. They're not going with God's word, which in the case of prophets would be spoken to them, or in our case would be written for us. It's not my word like fire, declares the Lord. I'm against the prophets who take their tongues and declare, Yahweh declares, Behold, I'm against those who have prophesied lying dreams. I skipped a lot, but it gives you the idea. This is what they do. They dream it up. They make it up. So in summary, I still need to answer why Jude introduced that third element of blaspheming glorious ones when he was talking about sensuality and about reviling or uh, denying Jesus Christ, rejecting his authority. Why did he introduce blaspheming glorious ones? But in summary, before I give an answer to that real quick, these ungodly ones from their own imagination, untethered to what's been written, that was hint number three, speak against ones who are set apart as holy, 
out of a desire to bring them down and make them more like them. That was hint number two. And it's basically blaspheming divine realities. That was hint number one. So, let me quickly try to explain. It's a side point, but why did Jude introduce this third blaspheming glorious one when he's really been talking about sensuality and rejecting Christ? Why did he introduce this? My best guess is comes from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews and Revelation are two books that really, in, in the Gospels, are really books that struggle to try to explain God's wrath. It's so bad, and they run out of terms to be able to describe it. It's so awful to even consider. They compare his wrath to a consuming fire that doesn't end. And it's just the worst thing we can think of in our physical world to describe uh, God's wrath. It's awful. You know, the author of Hebrews says, man, if you think Sinai was bad, where the mountain shook and everybody was so afraid, they're like, Moses, you go up there. I don't want to have anything to do with that God who is so glorious. If you think that was bad, like, it's 10,000 times worse. Our God is a consuming fire, right? So, the author of Hebrews is trying to help people appreciate just how awful God's wrath is. That same author in Hebrews 2 says something I think that will help explain why Jude introduces this third element. He says in Hebrews 2, 1 to 3, For this reason, because Christ is so much more amazing than angels, for this reason we have to pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away, because... If the word spoken through angels was unalterable, like Christ is so much better than angels. But look back. The word spoken through angels didn't change. It was unalterable. And if you disobeyed, and by the way, there was tradition, Jewish tradition, that the angels mediated the giving of the law. So that's why the author is saying this, that the law was given through angels. So if that law given through angels wouldn't change, and if you disobeyed it, you got a punishment and there was no way around it. Every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Right? So it's like, can you, you realize how bad it was? And you're talking about going against God and his, his son that came down? That's the, the idea of the argument. And I think that's what's happening here. Jude is like that author. He can't imagine... He can't imagine a teacher blaspheming Jesus. Like, the thought of that is unfathomable. But there's something closer and within grasp, and that's other divine beings that are still glorious. Certainly nothing like Jesus or like God, but divine beings. And these false teachers, they don't think twice about blaspheming them. They don't think twice about reviling those I mean, even the archangel himself, the highest angel, won't do that. And these idiots, right? I mean, that's how he would speak. These animals, these bulls in China shop, they'll do that about lesser glories. I mean, he can't even fathom saying what they do about Jesus and what that means, right? So I think it's just he's reaching for something. He's, he's talking about the denial of Christ. That's what's on his mind, what they're doing. But it just blows his mind that they would do that. He, he reaches for something more close, which is they even speak bad about angels. And archangels won't even do that. So in conclusion, the denying of Jesus Christ, the teaching that rejects his authority, because it's a teaching, is one that speaks against Jesus, 
by trying to reduce the difference between him and others. The same way that Korah tried to, hey, we're all holy. Jesus, he's just a man or something like that. Some way try to get him after. Some way try to reduce that, uh, that glory of Christ to deny his authority. It's a teaching that lowers Christ, that, that takes his glory and reduces it to make him more like us so that their sensuality is not as big of a deal, right? I mean, what does it matter if I do what I want if it's all random in evolution anyways? What does it matter? It doesn't matter, right? Or what does it matter if I follow licentiousness if Jesus, he's not what these teachers have been saying about him. Now, I am ready for my slide now. Again, is it likely? I want to ask the same three questions. Is it likely? We're, we're done here. We're going to go to uh, our break time, and, and we'll continue in the second hour. But is it likely? Yes, I think so. And I think, again, if you're wanting your cake now, if you're wanting pleasure now, if you're not willing to await, as Hebrews 11 says, for the promises that are to come, and you're going to have to cross lines, you're going to have to transgress, you're going to have to go beyond what God has authorized, what do you do? Well, you you attack the authority, right? You lower the authority. You lessen Christ. You speak against his glory. Unfathomable that they would do that, but they do. These false teachers do that. So it is likely. But we also ask the question about trading of grace with licentiousness. Did it really happen? Right? Did that actually happen? In second hour, we're going to look at three uh, teachers in the early church who did exactly that. They did exactly what we're describing. They lowered, they, they used their teaching, they used their words to lower Christ and deny his authority. We're going to look at the Marcionites, the, the theory, the teaching, the doctrine of adoptionism, and the teaching of Arius, referred to as Arianism. And as we finish, we'll give four scriptures that those who were teaching these doctrines used to support their case of Christ being less glorious than we might, for instance, say that he is. And we are going to spend those last four weeks uh, talking about those four scriptures and explain why they don't mean what these ungodly false teachers say then or today and, and said what they mean. We'll finish by asking this second hour, is, is this still true? Is this still an issue for us today? And, and the answer is it is. Some of these not as much as others, we'll see, but some are. And I want to close with just a warning. Um, the first thing Jude mentions, grace into licentiousness, is very practical, very easy to grasp, even if it's dangerous. And it is, right? I mean, it's on our phones. It's on our laptop. It's right here. It's not ephemeral. It's not invisible. It's not ineffable. It's right in front of us. It's base, if anything, right? I mean, it's uh, the temptations there are easy to understand, easy to explain, easy to wrap our hands around, extremely dangerous. But they're there. And, and good things, too. Again, I don't want to always just talk about those things as bad. They're, it's like electricity. They're good things. But they're there. And we can grasp them. They're right there. We understand them. Um, we've talked about them. The second, this idea of, of these teachers and their teaching and how they lower Christ 
not as much. It's not as uh, not as easy to grasp, right? These are glorious, divine, invisible realities. What we know, the little we know, it's because it's been written down. Like beyond that, I'd have to dream it up, and you don't want that, and I don't want that. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't want that either, right? So these are not easy. They're not easy things. The the texts that we're going to have to look at are not easy to understand. Like it, it's going to be hard, uh, is all I say. But it's important. Jude didn't tell us to contend against just the one and not the other. We're to contend against both. And so it'll be a little heady if that's a word. It's going to be, um, you know, you have to work hard to try to understand and think about these things because, again, they're not base. They're not uh, common, ordinary. These are glorious realities that we're dealing with. And, and so, but it's important. We're called to contend for them. So I'm going to pray for us. We'll have a break, and then we'll come back to talk about when it actually happened and what we can learn from that, and then we'll introduce the four scriptures, and that will give us our um, our plan for the rest of the time that I'm with y'all. All right, let's pray.